0: Hey, everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of season three of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Vision Consulting, which is a nonprofit consulting company that is national that does executive search and strategy for nonprofits. And with us today for our kickoff of season three is Ashley Watterson, our producer. Hello, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So uh, are you like beyond excited for this?
1: I really am so excited for the start of season three. I can't believe, Matt, that we have made it to the third season. We weren't sure we were going to make it to the third episode.
0: I think people need to know that as the producer of the show, you didn't really have any faith that we were going to get this far. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you.
1: Well, I mean, being honest, Matt, I, I had no idea what kind of a host you were going to be. I mean, for all I knew, you could have been an absolute disaster.
0: I knew, I knew. I was never a question to me. So did I tell you, Ashley? By the way, how I knew? Did Did we talk about the fact that I, you know, ran a homeless shelter and like I, I just know nonprofit. Did we have that conversation already?
1: I think the real problem was that I didn't read your bio mm, mm, before mm. we went on this adventure together. So that's kind of on me. I didn't. I didn't. You know, you and I are of the same school of thought. Matt. We've talked about this. We don't do research. It's not no. a thing.
0: No. No, we don't. Ooh, there was one more thing I forgot to mention. This is the problem with being such a terrible uh, student and not remembering things. There's something else I need to share. I love Halloween, as I think you know. And this podcast comes out in October, which is close to Halloween. And I want everybody to know that if you are so inclined, I now have Instagram for my house. I have actually entered a competition for my house to be the scariest house where I live. So the handle is La. Creepy Casa. All one word. L.A. Creepy Casa.
1: I love the name La Creepy Casa. It's, you know, La Casa, obviously, the house in Spanish. But then also, it's your house is in L.A. So La Casa, Los Angeles house. It's mm-hmm. it's very, very clever.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and my house is covered in spiders and they creep.
1: Let me turn the tables on you, Matt, as the interviewer. I'm now going to interview you because I think the people want to know like I know they can look at your house on Instagram, but we need a little teaser. Do you guys do sound effects? Like how how big? I mean, you're expecting to win some sort of competition. Are we talking like strobe lights? Are there like moving things on your lawn that you can operate by your like pressing buttons on your phone? Like it
0: is all of the above. We got fog machines and we got lights and we got movement and we've got sound and we've got music. We've got it all. It is It is some good times. And where I live in LA, we've got like 4,000 kids that come by for trick-or-treating.
1: Okay, two more questions, both of which are very important. One, will children likely cry when visiting your house?
0: I hope so. That's my goal. The litmus test for me is, will a child cry? Yes? All right, this is good.
1: That's a little bit like buyer beware, everyone. If you're going to Matt's house um, to trick-or-treat and you have young children, like just be aware like they will probably cry yes. and they may have nightmares for the better part of the next few months. So just yeah. like that, that doesn't mean don't go, just means like be aware. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, two, do you have a nemesis in your neighborhood who is giving you and Phil a real run for your money in this competition?
0: We do. And if you're listening, you know who you are. And I'm just going to say it, Ashley, our house is better.
1: And all nonprofit Podcast listeners are now going to go to your Instagram, La Creepy Casa, and they're going to say as much yes. in the comments.
0: Yes. Thank you. So before we introduce Awesome, uh, anything else we want folks to know before we take it away?
1: As always, Matt, I want everyone to know that we would love for them to subscribe to our show and to like us on social media platforms, Instagram and Facebook to find you at Twitter at The Nonprofit Guy. Um, We would love for people to write reviews for us at Apple Podcasts because we are always trying to stay above the fold, Matt, in the Nonprofit Podcast search criteria of Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, you can find more information about our show at our website, www.envisionnonprofit.com slash podcast.
0: Hey everyone, and welcome to season three of Nonprofit on the Rocks. My guest today is Afam Onyema, the founder of Jinko, which is a phenomenal nonprofit that saves and transforms the lives of the poor and vulnerable in Africa. Hello Afam, how are you today? Doing well, Matt, how are you doing? Doing all right. My house is under construction. So during this podcast, if there's a lot of noise or you see me looking around, it just means that my house is burning down. So thank you for putting up with whatever noise you have to put up with. Hey, no problem.
2: It's an honor to be here, fire and house wreck or not. Happy to be here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will be done. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I have a lot of friends in the construction business and the price of wood went up from like 17 bucks to a hundred bucks. How do you do any construction with that? Like
2: It's it's a crazy. And you imagine that they're probably marauding people just going through lumber yards right? and just digging it and selling it on streets. Right? No, it's
0: crazy. Anyway, um, as you know, this is the happy hour show and it is 4.22. So I want everybody to know that both Asim awesome and I are drinking early. What are you drinking today?
2: I have a nice hard cider here. Nice. All right. Hard cider guy, for better or worse.
0: Hard cider. I don't feel like I've had hard cider since, like, high school.
2: I get that a lot.
0: Well, I, as always, am uh, drinking bourbon, and I think that I've mentioned this before, but I, what I'm drinking is something called Bell Mead. I don't know. Are you at all into brown liquor?
2: Like I have a all? lot of friends who are very much into it, so I, I learned through
0: osmosis through them. I, I think as we've talked about on this show, I'm, I need to cut down a little bit. I mean
2: it. Now that we're like, getting out of COVID. It's, it's such a joy to finally be able to be more out and about, and just it changes your entire perspective and your energy uh, as well.
0: Well, to being able to be out and about, cheers to you! Thank cheers. You. Hmm. Okay, so on that note, um, as we can as we can start pulling out of this uh, pandemic here, um, what's like the first thing you want to do that you literally couldn't do up until like today?
2: Well, I I travel a lot for my job, both around the country and and back to Nigeria. So seeing my I haven't seen my parents since Christmas of twenty nineteen which is just insane. Uh, and, and so definitely going back to Chicago where I'm from to see them will be a priority. And then we, if all things go well, as you mentioned, here things are, are, are getting better. Uh, and things in Nigeria where we do our work are also not that bad, but the wrong variant gets there and who knows. And so I'm just hoping and praying that things remain calm there because we want to do our next surgical mission in, in November of this year. Again, we haven't done one since November of 2019. So to be back in Nigeria and see our patients and our scholarship girls and, and my family, I'm just really excited about that. And just to to travel, as much as I like being here in LA, I am just raring to get out of here.
0: Would you please tell our listeners what it is that Jinko does?
2: Sure. So our mission is to save and transform lives in Nigeria. And we have on the medical side, we do medical missions. We bring surgical teams over to do hip and knee replacements, minimally invasive surgeries like gallbladder removals, appendix. And then we also do maternal care. My dad being an OBGYN, women and children and women delivering babies safely has always been critical to us. And so we have these shipping containers that we retrofit into clinics and put them in rural areas. We take a big shipping container, turn it into a full on medical clinic with delivery, all sorts of ultrasound and testing and what have you. And then we put those in rural areas and they're run by local midwives and nurses completely. And we train them and they run them and we do child vaccinations, we do safe deliveries. So that's the maternal program. We also screen and treat pregnant women for anemia. Nigeria has the worst anemia problem in the world and is has a dangerous, dangerous blood condition, especially when you're pregnant. And on the educational side, we have the David Oyelowo Leadership Scholarship for Girls. We take girls who have been rescued from Boko Haram or escaped from Boko Haram terrorists or orphaned or abandoned by their families. The number of girls who are abandoned and left in camps because they're girls and not boys is staggering. So we take these girls and we have five partner schools and put them in school and pay for room and board, tuition, where their surrogate parents become, you know, we do PTA meetings and what have you, we we, we really dig into these girls' lives and make sure that they feel surrounded with, with safety and comfort and education. Uh, And then we also, the schools that we work with, we provide um, equipment that helps the entire school. So anything from power generators to laptops, we built, you know, soccer fields and basketball courts and science labs. And so... We just—I love the fact that we get to balance the education with the healthcare and the medical work that we do.
0: I, and I, I think I told you this before, and only one other person on this show have I geeked out over, but I fully geeked out over you ahead of time. So like, I'm a little bit nervous inter- interviewing you because like everything you've done and everything that we're going to talk about is insane to me. So you got Oprah, Oprah to donate. Again, that's not like your biggest
2: accomplishment. I understand that. But, uh, <laughs> you got Oprah to give you money. Like that's huge. Yeah, no, it's nuts. I was born and raised in Chicago. And of course, when we started charity, first thing anyone says in the world, especially in Chicago is, oh, you should Oprah to donate. And so, of course, you try and you find different ways to do it. And uh, and it's that that whole idea in our world of keep going until you get a yes. It's It's the right ask at the right time for the right thing. And so we actually got to her a few times before that uh, through intermediaries, and it just wasn't the right thing. She, we asked her for support for some of our medical work, our, scholar, our, our medical missions, and she just doesn't do a lot of that type of work. But then once we started the scholarship with David Ayellowo, who's an actor, humanitarian, and who has acted with Oprah as a dear friend of Oprah's, um, I got to her people before I got to know David. But then, once you heard David was involved, and it was a scholarship for girls in Africa, it just the stars aligned on that, and she was very generous to start that scholarship with that gift. So, not only we able to get the first class of girls going, but of course, once Oprah got involved, it you know made the made the media and the news, and David talked about it on CNN, and so it was it was really heady stuff. And I'm really a big supporter uh, of obviously of of hers, and a big fan of hers. And just the fact that she got this small charity going in a way, and and, we have to step up a level because of her. And to this day, uh, people will still say, oh my goodness, Oprah gave like this. Let me learn more about this. And let me, so you you get a chance, you you kind of get it at bat when Oprah is in your corner.
0: No, I know. And like, I love also that you just mentioned, you sly mentioned, you you know, David as a donor. (laughs) So so I want to start at the beginning because I, I feel like Oprah was this like pinnacle. You're right. Every single time anybody thinks about, hey, who can donate? It's like, why don't you just go to Oprah? Why don't you go to Michelle Obama? Why don't you go to whoever else, whatever name? And it's like, because you can't. And you did. That's insane. First of all, it's insane to start a nonprofit. It's insane to continue at it. Um, but then also that you, you know, you get donors, like who you have behind you and such an incredible mission and it's not here. So okay. it's one thing to raise money for something that people can go to easily. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing to raise money for somewhere all the way around the world that people probably won't go to. So let's back up sure. from the beginning. Um, and I want to, maybe we can talk a little bit about your dad, because if I understand correctly, this organization, Jinko that you started. Um started with your dad, right? Or yes. Are you making that up?
2: Yeah, no, it is. It is. Yeah. My dad's dream was the, was the seed for what's kind of blossomed and bloomed over the, the, this decade and a half since uh, we started. And my dad, native Nigerian, went to a British boarding school. Nigeria was a British colony until 1960. And so he went to this British boarding school and there was a British female, a rare British female doctor who had come over to Nigeria from England to help with that community. And she saw something in him and brought him along and help. And so when she was going through and helping the community, you know, through the various you know, malaria outbreaks and delivering babies and fighting infections, she'd bring my father along. My father would help him as much as he was able. And she, she just saw something in him and he fell in love with medicine, but more importantly, he, she, he fell in love with sacrificial medicine, this idea of going to a place of great need and pouring yourself into it establishing something that can help the community so he promised that doctor and my grandfather his father that i I may leave the country i may go study abroad or or earn now living abroad as a doctor but i am coming back i'm not going to be one of these brain drain africans who leaves and never comes back i'm going to come back and help this community my community so i met my mom who was trained to be a nurse in nigeria
0: I want to back up for one second,
2: because sure. these,
0: these are the these are the details that matter. Um, how did he meet your mom?
2: This is going to be the least romantic story that we one can give about how you meet someone. So my dad is, in, is an OBGYN, obstetrician gynecologist. And he was doing a certain female procedure. Definitely not, you know, at a candlelight dinner and looked across the room. They were like literally in the same OR. And my mom was the nurse in that procedure. You know, he he was... In his training, she was in her training. He asked for a scalpel so he could cut something. She handed the scalpel, and bam, that was that was it.
0: I, first of all, I've never heard uh, somebody meeting over a scalpel, so I, I, I
2: guess.
0: <laughs> but but I actually don't think that it's the least romantic. That's actually kind of that's actually kind of cool, right? Like it, is. it is cool. Can I, I'm going to just tell you one story about my dad that I find hilarious and he listens to this. <laughs> he was doing surgery once with a wedding ring and finished the surgery and didn't have the wedding ring. Ooh. So story about a doctor who knows,
2: somebody may have a wedding ring just floating around their body. But uh, I, I... <laughs> I feel like that's a Marvel superhero movie in the making. <laughs> like that. Whoever has that ring in them, something's going to happen. They're going to fight crime and make a, uh, a billion dollars at the box office at some
1: right? point.
0: I, I think, you know, it's like, did you, did you ever watch Seinfeld? Yes. So it's like the, what was the- oh they, Junior
2: Mints. Yes. Junior <laughs> yes.
0: I wonder if we have any young listeners, if they're going to have any idea
2: what Seinfeld Yeah, they're like, Seinfeld, what is,
0: huh? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so so we'll go back. I could bring it back. I can bring it back. (laughs) That's what makes me a good podcast uh, interviewer. Okay, so your dad met your mom over a scalpel in an operating (laughs) room. I love that story.
2: And, And then take it from there. Yeah, so then they, my dad matched with a hospital for his residency in Chicago, which is crazy because he moved to Chicago not knowing Chicago is blisteringly cold 11 and a half months out of the year and and as he moves out there with my mom and then i'm the second of four kids so we were all born here in chicago and my dad's plan my mom's plan was originally let's just get here learn modern medicine settle in save some money and then four or five six years from now move back to nigeria build our own facility our own hospital do our own work but then they realized gosh these kids have amazing opportunities to go to great schools have great lives nigeria is going through hell, um, still is going through hell in a lot of ways, and would it be fair to pull these kids from this opportunity? And they decided it's not. It wouldn't be fair. And so we, we moved to the south suburbs of Chicago, and my dad always told us about this doctor that really inspired him, about our, our aunts and uncles and cousins who are suffering greatly in Nigeria, and you know, one day he's going to do something about it, and hopefully we'll be a part of that. And I wish I could say, like, I was on his knee saying, daddy, I'm going to help you save lives. But mostly I was like, daddy, buy me more Nintendo games. I just, <laughs> I just could care less. Do you think that you
0: as a child, as you were growing up, should have really understood that? Or was it better for you to like, actually like, have a childhood where you didn't have to think about that, where you didn't really have to understand that? And then as you got older, you know, that made more sense to you. Right. But like, as you were growing up, you should have been asking for Nintendo. You should have been doing yeah. that. Like, so you know, what do you, what do you think?
2: No, I agree. I agree with, with the latter. Um, and I really I'm thankful and value my parents for allowing us to have you know, quote unquote normal childhoods. It's funny because I always tell this joke to my, or I talk to my mom about this. You know, if we didn't eat food, she'd say, no, there are kids starving in China. I'm like, mom, you're from Nigeria. You didn't think that that was your go-to reference? She's like, we're in America, everyone says China, I'm gonna say China, you know? She's like, we have to be American, we have to blend in. <laughs> and we would catch glimpses of, of things, both on television and like, you know, I catch a, 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 a conversation my mom was having with someone in Nigeria who's struggling, or we'd have someone come over from Nigeria and tell stories. But we had very much, you know, childhoods that were that weren't touched by the chaos and and also we'd had the pressure of one day you're going to come up and save this land it was just very much like whatever you want to do there my parents are very supportive um like as long as it's a doctor a lawyer an engineer then whatever you want to do that's funny that's, <laughs>
0: yeah. that's every jewish parent except there you the, Yeah. except
2: the engineer it's doctor lawyer
0: accountant <laughs> ah yes <laughs> so that's what and i didn't do any of the three
2: and you didn't do any What well, you didn't do any of the three either i was i was pre-med um in college took the mcat and everything but i knew from the very beginning i didn't want to do it it was i was the one great hope in the family to be a doctor and i felt that both unspoken and a little bit of spoken pressure and but i'd never forget i took the mcat did fairly well i did my um medical school applications I had them in my hand because this is, this is pre So I had to, you had to walk them to the post office. I'm standing in front of my door in my dorm room and I could not leave. I just literally could not mail them out. And I said, you know what? I can't do this. The minute I said that, whoosh, like a whole like weight was off my shoulders. I never once thought about that decision. I told my mom when I went back home a few weeks later and she was, it was that mix of confusion Anger and just being thoroughly crushed. Like, I just will never, I've never seen that mix of, of emotions before or after. And it to this day, she's like, it's not too late. You can still go be a doctor. And I'm like, mom,
0: it's too late. If it's any consolation to you, my mom still wishes that I was a rabbi. So, like, maybe for the second part of our lives, uh, you go back and be a doctor, I'll be a rabbi, or we can switch. You could be the rabbi and I could be the doctor.
2: That would yeah. be something. Yes. Right? You, you being a doctor like in Nigeria, and then I'm a rabbi. Totally. That would be that would that. That's a Netflix show. I feel like we have a show right there. That's um, we can sell um, that.
0: um, and you have all the connections to Hollywood, so we'll make uh, it
2: happen. I'm I mean, texting Oprah right now. Oh, I got one for you. We have it. Let's do it. Yes. Let's do. It. I'm done with this show. I'm done. I'm done with non.
0: <laughs> done with nonprofit. Let's just move on. Okay, you didn't go and become a doctor. Talk to me a little bit about how Jinko started. Um. And also, I think it's a it's an acronym of names. Yes. If you would be so kind as sure. to tell us what it stands for, um, and then kind of how how you went from not being a doctor and totally disappointing your mom, and let's be honest, she's as you said, she's still disappointed. You, how you
2: started Jinko? Sure, yeah. So Jinko, uh, and it's G E A N C O, and it's the first initial in um, everyone in the family's name. So the G is Godwin, my father. The E is Abella, my sister. The A is me, Afam. And then we had to cheat a little bit. The N is Unche, my sister. But then my mom has a baptized Christian name, which every Nigerian of that generation got. And but her actual like given native name is Unma, N-M-A. And so we doubled up on the N, Chuku my brother, everyone calls him goes. And then Onyama is the O. And so growing up, all our license plates were Jinko 1, Jinko 2. My dad loved that acronym. And so when we, when we decided to create this foundation, it truly is rooted in family. You know, my dad's story, his father being an inspiration, doing it for his family, you know, doing it with my family. And, and then it's grown because anyone who donates and supports us, anyone who goes on a mission is truly part of our family. That was, was easy when we decided to come to the name. In terms of my evolution or my journey to that, that position as Jinko's leader, when I got to Harvard, I just there's so many of my classmates and schoolmates who were so wait, concerned. Wait wait wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to. I just have to. I love it how you were like, Oh, when I got to Harvard, like <laughs> you know like it's as one does you know I got to heart, like yeah as one does just you know by the way you totally didn't get in matt to harvard or any ivy league school by the way. okay yes. when you got to harvard
2: i got there so many of my classmates who were great who were the, the thought for, for them was how can i be politically powerful or financially successful culturally relevant in a big way in a way that that is national or international and so that was the whole ethos there as people were, were were preparing, making their, their chess moves already to become governor, to become CEO and what have you. And that's all great. I have I have classmates who have run for president, who are millionaires, who are Oscar winners and what have you. Um, and I love that. Um, but for me, I just thought, like, gosh, what could I do to actually make an impact in this world, to actually reach out and to help people, support people? My time at Harvard and leaving coincided with the, the pinnacle of the AIDS epidemic in, in Africa and in Nigeria in, in particular, but Africa in general. And so there was, there was this great stirring when, uh, when I graduated, Bono was our class day speaker and he spoke about his work in terms of lowering the debt for African countries, providing more money for AIDS and for, for fighting disease. And I'll never forget. He said that, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Ireland, the Americans put a man on the moon and i thought gosh there's nothing that america can't do and is that still true and if anyone can make it true again you can people at this school and i'll never forget that cuz i actually wasn't a big youtube fan i obviously knew of them but i thought like, gosh this guy is just speaking truth like he's just hitting me like he's like you know forget the 5000 people in this in this uh space it's just like me and him talking and so after that, I thought more and more about what I can do along those lines, and talked to my dad and said, "Okay, like you told me about this doctor, this dream. Just tell me more about what you want to do, and I just want to learn about it. I'm not committing to anything. I just want to learn about it." And so he told me, and I got more interested and more involved. And I thought, okay, well, when I make it, quote unquote, make it, I'll make sure that I support this. It's my main charity. I'll, you know, I'll raise money. All my rich friends will get together and help you. I end up working uh, for two years doing corporate public relations for a firm in Chicago, then w- went and did a little bit of in-house work for a law firm in Chicago before then going to Stanford Law School. And um, it was-
0: um, But again,
2: <laughs> again,
0: okay, I went to Harvard because any idiot can go to Harvard. Yeah. And then, Oh yeah, I just happened to go to Stanford for, for law. Um, I need you to back up for one second. We need to back up for one second. Yeah. All right. You didn't become a doctor. You disappointed your mom. And then all of a sudden you were like, cool, I'm going to like be a lawyer. How did this happen?
2: Well, you know, as uh, it's really, again, for a Nigerian mother, African mother, it was really doctor, lawyer, engineered, forever disappointment. And so I thought, you know, doctor, not happening, too many sick people, too many issues with that. A lawyer, you know, I can, I like arguing or debating, I should say. I like, I like pontificating. I liked, the, I liked how versatile the law degree was, um, to be serious. I loved how versatile the degree was and how. Yeah, CEOs and you have presidents and politicians and and entrepreneurs who have law degrees. Um, and so, I and I wanted to get another degree. I wanted to advance my education in some way, and I really loved the environment at Stanford. To be honest, I don't think I'd be doing this work if I wasn't at that law school in that on that campus because there's such a. There's such an air of possibility like people have a have an idea and it becomes google you know people are like oh i want to do this and then thing you know everyone has it on their phone um and that kind of just you just felt it in the air i got there and almost immediately started juggling my law work with helping my dad and learn and so i would i'd be at property class then i would go to the medical school to learn about malaria i would you know, talk about you know constitutionality of whatever law. And then I'm thinking, okay, how does one build an organization? And so I just love that being in that environment. Um, but after my third year of law school, I had to choose. And it was between taking one of these multiple law firm offers or really seeing this idea through. And when I was in law school, I couldn't go because obviously I was a student, but I helped organize a team of doctors to go over to Nigeria to do hip and knee replacements. There were a group of doctors from Chicago. They did over 30 uh, procedures. And I saw the pictures heard the stories. And I realized, gosh, those people who were in agony had no other options. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, these doctors are coming tomorrow. But then Bill Clinton's bringing doctors the next month. Like We were the only hope for them. And their lives were changed forever. And I could be a part of that. Like, I could wake up and have that be my thing. And it just inspired me and thoroughly terrified me that idea of really making that commitment. And I thought that's a pretty good place to be in life to be both thoroughly inspired and completely terrified about what you do. And I just said, you know what? Take them the leap. A lot of my friends said, oh, you know, work for a few years, make some money. I'm like, if I start working for two years, two years will become 20. I just, I know myself. And, I want to start this now. I want to struggle through the growing pains now. I want to get to get started. Because if I start now, I have that much more time to help more people and be a part of growing something.
0: What is so important about what you said is the terrified part. And I love everything about that word and and thinking about work. Because, you know, for those people who are thinking about starting a nonprofit, I mean, you make it Make it sound easy, and it's not. Starting a nonprofit is so much work. First of all, figuring out what the mission is, and forget all of that. Figuring out the paperwork. I mean, that's nuts. and you know, yes. Stuff, and it costs money. You don't like. You don't make money. You're actually paying money to start a nonprofit. You don't make any money for a long time, Absolutely. and even then, even then. So, uh, 2007. You're in LA, by the way. 2008 and 2009, not so great for the economy.
2: The worst time to start a charity. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to do this," and all of a sudden the world ends, and you're trying to raise money for a charity doing work in Nigeria. Like there's just you couldn't line up things against you more. And to be honest, and, and Matt, you're 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 just so right. People think, "Oh, I started a charity and it was wonderful, and just everyone just came rallied and it was perfect." The, the, those first two or three years were the worst of my life. They were just brutal. You get up in the morning, okay, start saving lives. Like there's no, there's no to-do list. No one's telling me to do anything to do. I have no idea if what I did that day was any good. No one's evaluating you. There's no objective standards. I'm, I'm coming out of law school where the last thing they tell you is how to raise money and how to fundraise and what have you. It was, so I didn't have the technical training. I had so much to learn, I had so much to experience. I had to do a ton of outreach, heard a ton of no's, and meanwhile, my friends are all establishing themselves, and they're buying their BMWs, and they're buying their really nice apartments, and I felt really disconnected from everything. It was a really, really challenging time, and I had to struggle a lot just to enforce some routine in my life, to to establish some small steps of success. Okay, today you're going to learn about malaria. That's your only goal today. Just find out how bad it is in Nigeria. What are solutions? Tomorrow you're going to learn about how to raise money in terms of individuals. How do you get meetings? How do you talk to them about this stuff? Next week you're going to work on board recruitment. Like I just tried to. I had to just break my life down into literally hour by hour, day by day, um, a- until things started to break my way. And again, I'm really blessed, and I understand the position of privilege I was coming from in terms of. When I first decided and announced to my my Stanford law class that I was doing Jinko, they my classmates threw a fundraiser for us in Palo Alto and raised money that way before I graduated. One of my professors, you know, made a bunch of money in the tech boom of the two thousands and said, "Okay, well, this is crazy, but I like you. I believe in you. I will basically underwrite your life for a year and a half. Go raise money for the charity, but here's money to actually put food in your mouth." close on your back and pay your rent. And yeah. another, f- another friend whose stepdad is a billionaire. And so they came on board and just, again, I understand like that, not everyone has that. No, one everyone can, can say, Hey, fellow Harvard guy who now runs a multi-trillion dollar organization and what have you. And I, I sent out thousands of letters to alums all over the world asking for help. And to this day, gosh, over, over 15 years later, some of those people who responded are some of my best friends you know and our our most loyal donors so um even with all of that though it was it was an enormous struggle so i can't imagine people who don't have those connections and network how much they struggle And i had my heart goes out to anyone and i've talked to a lot of people in the years um since we started about oh how can i start and what can i do how can i be like you know you and what jinko's doing and i tell them Just get ready. Are you are you willing to go through this pain? Are you willing to do it day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month? And it isn't the path for everybody, but those who stick with it get a lot of joy out of it. And the impact they make is even more meaningful because they recognize all the pain they went through to get to where they're at. I'm gonna ask you this question.
0: Would you rather be lucky or skillful?
2: Ooh. I would rather be skillful because I think there is a time limit to luck, you know, you can, you can be lucky with an Oprah, but Oprah gives you one donation. You need that money again, the year after the year after the next, after the next being skillful, you put yourself in position to maximize what you get and to expand your network and relationships. And I just feel like that is such a invaluable thing. Um, and then that brings its own luck because you know, where to put yourself, where to position yourself, how to position yourself, Luck is great, but I think skill puts you in a position where you luck can come along. If it doesn't, you'll still earn it the hard way.
0: Okay, I like that. You needed that skill, but you really were lucky to have those relationships to be able to then, you know, move forward. Can you describe a moment when
2: you were like, you know, what? I can't do this. I really gave it a shot. I remember, and it's. Gosh, I had the, the visual so powerful to me. I was in my bed leaning on the wall because I had T Mobile at the time, and T Mobile had like three places in my apartment where I actually got reception. I'm curled up in my bed with a talking to one of my friends from law school. And I'm just like, I don't know if I can do this. I, I just don't know if I can do this. It was never, I won't do this or I'm going to stop doing this. It was more just, am I doing this right? Like, what am I doing? And never a matter of abandoning it, just a matter of like, what am I doing? If it makes sense, there was frustration and maybe some desperation inside of the work, but I never thought of leaving the work. Like it was like, ah, this is, okay, man, today, pick my butt, but there's tomorrow, you know? And I kind of got up and got through it. And also just once I really understood that, yeah, I think one of the challenges of going to a place like Harvard or Stanford, you expect success. Like you've been successful most of your time, you go there and you just realize, oh yeah, like I'll just, I'll become this, I'll become that, I'll I'll run this company or this country or what have you. And then when you're really hit with disappointment, when things don't work out the way you want them to, like, how do I make this happen? And it was just grinding it out. I wish I could say it was because I'm brilliant or I had some special skill but i think anyone who knows me will know will say that i'm consistent that i i just i will do what i need to do and i'll do it day after day whether it's exercise whether it's a friendship i don't know how to not be consistent so for this work it was just okay send another e- send another email to this donor or say send another letter okay like read more about this like try to get this board member on back on board and just so it was like jinko was built do these just moments of pushing through, pushing through, and then you get a break here. And then you use that break as a springboard and as a breath of fresh air to get you to the next break. And next thing you know, you look back and go, oh, Ashley, the like that the medical mission that we did actually, you know, there are 26 people who have new hips and knees and it was helter skelter getting there, but we got there and now what's next and what's next. And so um I still have that mindset of like hey what's next what's next what can I, what can I do to strengthen this relationship what can I do to learn more about this what can I do to share jinko more what can I do to be a better leader and so it's just that yeah I just consistency I think that we're so we're in a world where consistency just is not valued we're just and to me it's the key to to so much success is is being consistent and pushing through pain and pushing through disappointment and sticking with something i think people value that i know our donors value that and people who support us value that and i value it in other people as well
0: so if somebody has started a nonprofit and it's just at that point where like it's not connecting they haven't gotten that donation they need you know they've they've put in their last dollar they have no money in their bank account they can't pay rent but they really believe in the cause and they know that it is needed right what do you say to that person to just keep going and not give up? Or maybe they should.
2: That's a really great question and a really challenging one because you do want to balance. You don't want to say you just keep at it no matter what. And next thing you know, they they lose their home or their kid can't go to school or what have you. So it's really, do they have the passion and is there a plausible way forward? And it's really sitting down with them and saying, and also asking them what your goal, what what's their goal? If their goal is to cure cancer, and they start their own cancer organization, well, can you work for American Cancer Society? Can you do walk and runs? Can you find some way to advance that goal that doesn't involve you creating your own thing? Uh, if it's something that they truly feel I need to do, this is it. Well, can you scale it back? Can you take it by chunks? Can you work part time and then do it part time? Like there, I feel like there's. It's really figuring out in the end, like what is your why? What is like what are you, what's the ultimate goal of what you're trying to do? And that can that can also it can expose some people because their goal is, well, I gotta do it because I want it to be the John Smith foundation and I wanna be the one out there talking about it. I'm like, well, then this is about you. Like this is just a vanity thing, in which in which case, whether it fails or succeeds is almost immaterial because it's just about you and your and your ego. Um, And I've had those, I've had that conversation with people like, well, I really want to know, help this cancer thing or help this um, environmental thing. I say, well, why don't you work with X organization? Yeah. But then I'm just another guy working for them, or then I'm just someone else. And I really want to be my thing. Do they have that fortitude? Can they make it through? Can they make it through the painful periods and remain hopeful and not get bitter, but also recognize, gosh, this is not working out. And can I, can I pivot? And can I, adjust. And I think those questions have to be asked in each case.
0: What I'm hearing from you, which is really interesting is that when you talk about ego and you talk about yourself, the way that you've sort of talked about, oh, I went to Harvard or Stanford, whatever, and I started this company and all this great stuff, you haven't really talked about you. And so it isn't about your ego. And And I'm, I'm always impressed. So I work in nonprofit. I do recruiting. I do strategy for tons of clients. We serve a hundred and something clients a year all over the country. And I don't think people realize just how much ego there is. I don't think people realize as they're donating money and you should continue to, that there is so much ego in nonprofit, but I don't hear that from you. And so how are you able to take yourself out of the equation? Like, how are you, you know, and I I think that that's really important for a nonprofit to always think about the mission and always think about what we're trying to do. Right. But somehow people get in the way of themselves.
2: How are you able to keep yourself out? A couple of reasons for that. I think one is because if I woke up one day and said, I'm going to save the world and this way I'm going to do it, then that is just a naturally egotistical thing. And you lead with that because this story, Jenko's story begins with my father back in the sixties and fifties and his inspiration. And even though I came on board and put flesh on it and made it an actual organization and decided to run it full time. In the end, I'm almost like borrowing this dream. Like I'm almost, so there's a humility there of saying like, wow, I'm in service to my father and my family and my community in that way. Um, and then also, I think it's funny. I think we de-emphasize traits that we deplore in others. Ego and and more specifically, transactional relationships. How can I, what can I extract from you? I think we're just in the extraction industry where people are just, you meet someone and you say, what can I extract from this person? Whether it be money. Whether it be, you know, something physical in a relationship, whether it be a a recommendation or a reference. And the other person's thinking the exact same thing. It sounds hokey, but like my life's mantra is really how can I serve? And that I lead with that. I don't even think about it anymore. I just I live it, I'll fail, I'll think about that failure, and I'll just resolve to try again. And so um, I think that resonates with with people, certainly with donors. Yeah. The day that this becomes about me is a day that I just I tell my family and I tell our board that I'm done because I just can't function in life that way.
0: Where does that come from?
2: I think a lot of it, you know, my our parents, my my mom and my dad raised us um with faith, like they're very faithful people, and I and that's that's been a big part of my life and still is a big part of my life. And the idea of service comes from um comes from that belief that we're here to serve. And I just love the fact that my beliefs and and my work are in complete alignment. It'd be one thing if i you know i'm a contentious corporate litigator but then i also do jinko on the side or i'm a bare knuckle you know tear down this company and strip it of assets and sell them but then i also want to give aids orphans drugs i I just i feel like i i i'm in harmony in terms of what i do and what i believe and um again maybe that resonates with people as well they see that They see that i am I'm all in. Like all facets, of, all facets of my life and personality are all in on this Jinko work. Jinko is my life. It isn't just uh, a line in my LinkedIn profile. Like it is, it is what I do. It's who I am. I think that resonates. People know, like, I'm not going anywhere. This is, you know, like there's a trust there, um, and the fact that I could have done a million different things. Uh, I remember, I remember telling um, one of our donors who was a corporate guy. I'm like, listen, I could be in the office next to you. You know, this is like I—I I could very well be in an office next to you. I'm—I've made the choice to do this, and so I truly do believe in it, and I want you to be a part of it with me. And that, again, I think that resonates with people on a on a deep level.
0: Uh oh, I hear that music again. I think it's time for Matt's plane. Ashley, team me up.
1: All right, Matt. This question comes from Jennifer. Matt, my coworkers and I are feeling so burnt out. Got any ideas for how we can get motivated again? P.S. We work at a homeless shelter, your favorite.
0: <laughs> Did I mention actually that I used to work at a homeless shelter? Did I talk about that before?
1: I, I've never heard that before. I'd love to hear about that sometime. You'll Absolutely. have to talk about it on the show.
0: So I think we're all really burnt out. I think everybody's in this place right now where it's weird or we're like hybriding or sort of going back to work or we're dealing with traffic again and we're all just really tired. And I think that the easiest way to get back especially in the nonprofit space is to go volunteer. Go volunteer somewhere where you wanna maybe give out food at a soup kitchen or you want to fill backpacks for kids going back to school, whatever it is, just to feel connected again to why we do nonprofit in the first place. Cause we do this to give back to the community. And I think we all sort of lost that because we haven't seen people for the last year and a half. And that I think should help you.
1: I'm going to add to that Jennifer, that you could go to a spa as well, but definitely agreeing that the volunteering is 100% the way to get motivated again. Thanks, Matt. And now back to our episode with Afam Onyema of Jinko.
0: So you have a ton of celebrity donors and you
2: have a ton of celebrity support. How has that helped you well, it's, I always think of the metaphor of the dog chasing the car and gets it. And then now what, you know, and, and the idea of people, oh, if I only get to George Clooney, if I only get to Oprah, I'm like, all right, well, if Oprah sits down with you and says, how can I help? What's your answer besides give money? Cause even the most generous celebrity can only give so much. And that seems so limiting. So I think what we've been successful at and what I'm, what I'm proud of is having answers to those questions that are more creative. And so, by far our most successful fundraising has come through offering experiences with celebrities. And so instead of saying, hey, would you want to go to this premiere? And then if you donate or bid a dollar more than me, you get tickets and you're going to see the Avengers or you're going to see whatever movie we do. We work with a platform called Omaze and it's, you donate hundred dollars for hundred chances, a thousand dollars for, the more you donate, the more chances you have. But people can donate 20 bucks and get the, the experience. And so again, we're just so blessed to have some great supporters. So um, Ben Cumberbatch, the actor is a, is a amazing human being and and a, and a good friend. And we, we offered a chance to meet him for tea, kind of playing on the whole English thing for the premieres of Avengers, Infinity War and Endgame. And those two alone grossed $1.4 million. We had 36,000 donors in 170 countries donate. And again, the average gift was like $30. Wow. Yeah. But it's just knowing the right people and developing that trust where someone can, doesn't mind using their, their ask burning their ask or kind of, you know, using their political capital, goodwill to get you in because they know they can trust you with it, that the money's going to a really good cause. So I'm constantly asking for stuff like that for set visits for premieres, for meet and greets, for access to this. And I'm people know I'm not, I do it very respectfully, but I'm not shy about asking. They can tell me no, but it's all about ask. and. But I also know when to ask. I'm not going to meet someone and then five minutes later say, yeah, well, I know you know Brad Pitt. So can you call him for me? Again, I hate transactional relationships. So build a true relationship where the person says, listen, I mean, I've had people say, like, use me. Like, how can I, like, like don't be afraid. Like, ask me. I want, I want to be engaged. I'm leaning in. Like, okay, you're leaning in. Bam, bam, bam. Here's a list of things that we can do together. And again, as long as it's directly connected for me to the cause, you know, I have a burning desire to be on a movie set just so I can like say, I'm on a movie set. Like it's just, I'm on that movie set so that we can raise more money. So more girls can have education and be freed from terrorism, from hopelessness. So more women can deliver babies safely and everything flows to that. And I think the, the stars respect that. And the donors respect that. And that keeps that keeps them in our constellation. It keeps them involved and engaged.
0: Often, do you want like a gay best friend? Because hey, I know
2: somebody. I know done. somebody.
0: There. God. Um, I just want to bring it back to a few things. The thing that I think people listen to this about is I think they want to know more about the different nonprofits that are out there. I think they want to know more about the founders and the leaders that are in each community. And I also think that they want to know how to to do it, right? Like, I hope that people listen to this show to find out how to be an executive director, to find out how to, you know, how they, why they should be one, for example. Um, How they can start a nonprofit like you, like how they can be successful. It's not, I agree with you, you don't have to know all of Hollywood to be successful, but when you're at that point where you meet somebody, you better know why they should give. You better know how you can use them, right? Like, you have to know where you want that organization to be, how you're going to get there, and really what you need to get there. So you said earlier, you're always looking for that next thing. And I, asked you, I, I mentioned this earlier. So tell me when is enough enough? When are you going to say, you know what, Chinko is successful. I am happy with what we're doing. You know, we're actually meeting our goal. What does that look like?
2: Well, I feel like I need to pay you therapist money because that that's a that's a real that's a real challenge for me just in life um just i i always had that sense of what's next yeah i I, it's hard to say when enough is enough you know like is it when you when when we have a certain number of girls under scholarships and you're like well we have a thousand girls could we have five thousand or we do two we do a medical mission a year can we do two can we squeeze in a third and I just it's so balancing progress and realizing you can always do a little better, always do a little more. With also being content and realizing that I'm okay, I'm servicing and and both my foundation and my family and our donors and the people in Nigeria. I'm I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. Um, It's that sense of. You know, maybe part of not having that that raging ego is also like never feeling you're enough, never feeling that your that your work is enough, never feeling you know that I can always do more. That that today was today a good day. I could I could have done better. You know, Uh, is is has our conversation been great, fantastic? But I probably could have said this or that or served you better in this conversation. So. I it's I'm the last person to give someone advice on that besides just recognizing that it's a challenge for me and that I'm really struggling with it and that there has to be a balance between being content and wanting to do more.
0: I really appreciate the honesty. I I really do. I think people I don't think people are are so self-aware as you are. So I and I and I think without having that ego and a little bit of the imposter syndrome that I heard. Um, you are always looking to do more. And I think that that's, that's what makes you successful. So here's a very annoying question that's unfair. And I hate it because I've gotten this before, but I'm going to ask you because people people ask this, right? And it's, sure. it's my most frustrating question that I've been asked before because I've raised a lot of money. I'm, my favorite thing to do is fundraise. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. And I've raised a lot of money for a lot of different causes all over the world. So here's the question that I get asked. I hate it. I'm going to give it to you for you to give the answer, right? Sure. Okay. So there's a lot of causes in this country, a lot of needs in this country. Look, in Los Angeles alone, there are 90,000 homeless people on the streets that don't have homes, period, here in our backyard. Why should I give to your cause that gives to Nigeria and not to my own backyard?
2: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, And... I will, I will preface this by saying I do get that question a lot, but it's amazing how many times I get that question from people who aren't giving in their backyard. I'll, I'll be in an event, I'll be somewhere and they'll say, well, there are a lot of, a lot of causes here in, in California or in the i S I'm like, Oh, well, what causes do you support here? I'd love to learn more about them. Maybe I can help you. Well, I don't really, you know, it's just like this, this country screwed. And like, why would I give to something in that state when I'm here? It's eventually, so I, I realize that people who ask that question aren't giving to anything. Like they're just—it's not a question of giving locally or globally. It's a question: of, I don't want to give, and this is the reason why I'm not giving to you. So I'll just put that aside. Um, but if someone honestly asks asks that question, which is a very valid question, I'll tell people, well, it's just how big a circle do you want to draw around yourself? Because I can then say, I live in West LA. I could care less what's going on in downtown Skid Row. Like I. I, why would I care about that? Why would I care about what's going on the beaches in Santa Monica and the environment or what have you? Or why should I care about Northern California or the, you know, the East Coast? And, and so, you know, taking your pen, your marker, how big a circle are you drawing around what you care about? Is it just you, just your family, just your city? And there are people in this world who, have a very big marker and, and Nigeria is in that circle and they can look at it and say, the fact that girls can be abused and abandoned and not in school. Nigeria has the largest number of girls out of school in the entire world. Um, Almost 11 million girls out of school. So there is a, there is a, a, a floor for, the floor for people here in the U S could be the highest ceiling in Nigeria. Like that, people aren't getting pulled off the streets and thrown into child gangs. They aren't being pulled off the streets and married off at 12. They're not being burned alive. They're not being kidnapped. And so there's, there is a, a level of trauma that is unimaginable here. And so we meet that trauma. If you have a sharp, sharp pain in your hip, for instance, you can go to a free clinic, you can go get a free surgery. There there are programs, there are facilities here in the U S the idea that someone would go 50 years with the type of injuries that we see in Nigeria would almost be criminal here. Like there are, there are, there are, again, floor to ceiling as the biggest difference. So I tell people, listen, if you want to truly meet people in desperation and help them grab them and help them go to another level, help them have a a quality of life that is, that is human dignity, then we'd love to work with you. But I understand that people say it's too far and it's too foreign. I understand that. But then the question for me is then like, okay, well, tell me where are you drawing your circle? You know, and if you, and also like, it, it could be, you really want to focus all your attention on homelessness in LA, like you said, Great. I want to learn more about what you're doing and the impact you're making in that. And again, I realize that not everyone, that most people, the majority of people are going to care less about Jinko, are not going to be donors. No matter what I say, no matter how eloquent a speech, no matter how big the celebrity that's standing next to me, my job is just to find those who are interested and build into them and can collect them, build a community and justify their support, justify their faith every single day of my life, every single moment of my life. So um, it's a very quick conversation for me, for someone who asked that question, because I'm not trying to convince anyone to, to give my, my job is to find people who are inclined that are leaning in a bit and then show them why they're worthy to lean, why it's, why it's good for them to lean in more why this is a home for them.
0: You know, I, I interview a lot of people. God, you're just such a good person. It's so annoying. So I'm curious, if you weren't doing this right now, right? Like, let's just say that there was a hostile takeover and your board- <laughs> they fired you tomorrow. What else would you be doing?
2: Well, I would say professionally, my my goal was to... Go to law school, become a lawyer, corporate lawyer for just a few years. The intersection between sports and business and marketing—I I love that idea of mixing negotiating and sports—and just I love that world. Had Jenko not existed, I would, you know, hopefully be well along that path. But I also, I also thought it'd be interesting to just. You know, and then, I mean, this, is, this is a plea for anyone who's listening happens to be a billionaire and wants to adopt me and just spend their money, basically, like not worry about fundraising, just like have someone say you will, I will give you $500 million a year to spend yes. and you have got to put the, a plan together or a team together and just spend it. You That's know, it. and That's
0: my dream. Sorry, don't take my
2: dream. Take <laughs> isn't that, no, no, no. guess no. like a, a, a kind,
0: beloved billionaire. billionaire? Like trust you. Listen, listen. I, I want to go back to our Netflix show where you're the rabbi and I'm the doctor. <laughs> I aspire to be like an Oprah interviewer, so I want you to see what I want one day is for you to say to me, you know what, Matt? Like that interview that Oprah did of like Mega Merkel. Sure, it was fine but this interview with me is like 100 times better than whatever Oprah did. Like that's what I want. That's what I want one day
2: for you. Oh no, it's going to happen. I'm going to send this to Oprah when it's ready and she's going to just call me crying and she's like I don't know who this Matt is but he's ruined me. I, I have got to go back and just go back, go back into the gym and just train. You know, I I owe Megan and Harry an apology because he could have done it a lot better. <laughs> but I do need
0: you to send it to her because truly if If Oprah just one tweet, one tweet was like, hey, listen to Nonprofit on the Rocks, like, come on, that would be huge. All right. I I cannot think of a more amazing nonprofit, a more amazing founder and leader. I, I am just so blown away by you. I really am. And I'm sure people say that all the time. But coming from a nonprofit person who has started nonprofits, who has founded nonprofits, who have run nonprofits. I do hope you realize just how amazing you are. You really are impressive. What you did is people don't do it. Like, you know, you somebody says, sure, I want to start a nonprofit. Sure. And then they give up or they do it and it's mediocre or, you know, whatever it is. But like, you've really, really kicked ass. Oh, so I, I, I hope that those who are listening to this show look you up. Where can they find you? What's the website?
2: So it's Jinko G E A N C O dot O R G.
0: So I hope that people now go to Jinko dot org and write a check, make a donation, make it monthly. Really yeah. learn about the needs of why it is that you do what you do. Also, by the way, see all the famous pictures that are up there. I saw, <laughs> I saw Oprah and David. I saw that. I saw your <laughs> picture with Jimmy. I saw yes. that. So really, like, but honestly, truly. Uh, All jokes aside, what you do is spectacular. What you do is needed. The mission of the organization is so important. And I really hope that nobody actually does say, why should I give outside this country? Please do, please give. And is there anything else off them that I have forgotten to ask you? Anything else that you want somebody to know
2: no, I, I. This has been incredible, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, like you said, anyone can go to our website to check out more. And I always tell people, even just sharing it, even if this is not necessarily for you, or if it is for you, uh, I always I tell my my family and my friends, I don't know who you know, and you'll be surprised. People who have no connection to Africa or Nigeria, who for whom this resonates, and so if anyone doesn't have the financial resources but wants to help, just post the link share the link. Just, you never know.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being so amazing. And, uh, I hope your mom does listen. I also hope that your mom really is proud of you because you're amazing.
2: Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been an honor to be with you and just to share with you. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So uh, what'd you think?
1: Again, could not have chosen a better interview to kick off season three. Afam and Jinko are incredible.
0: And Oprah.
1: And Oprah. Oprah is incredible. Yes.
0: Let's not forget about Oprah because as we talked about, I'm going to hashtag Oprah all day long. And if that doesn't get us more listeners, I'm going to be so disappointed. And nobody likes a disappointed Matt.
1: Matt, did you ever play that game Back to Bacon or Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Of course. So for those of you who aren't Matt's in my age, um, Kevin Bacon is an actor who was in a pretty wide array of movies. And you can play a game where virtually every actor can be connected to him through other films in Six Degrees or Less. So Matt, you are now only three degrees from Oprah. Wow. And so I'm I'm just thinking like, could we play back to Matt? How many degrees do you think you are from Ariana Grande now? If you were only three degrees from Oprah and you got to imagine Oprah knows Ariana Grande. So ergo, you would only be what? Four degrees from her.
0: I, I just fell on the floor. Oprah adjacent? Is that, I'm Oprah adjacent? I don't.
1: You are. And vis- vis-a-vis Oprah, you're now like four degrees from anyone is anyone. So it's pretty, it's pretty impressive.
0: Afam, awesome. you have made my year. And yes, you're amazing in your organization. Great. All that good stuff, whatever. But you have gotten me closer to Oprah. Do
1: you think Afam's having like serious regrets about doing our show? Because he's like, dude, that Matt guy really seemed to care so much more about Oprah than my organization. Like is Afam having serious regrets about doing Nonprofit on the Rocks, do you think?
0: If, if I could be honest... And only with you, Ashley, because at this point, we anyway, we know no one's listening. I think everybody regrets coming on this show. I'm going to tell you why. I think it has everything to do with the editing. So I think it has everything to do with the producer of the show. I'm not naming any names. And
1: uh... look, I, I told you it's a learning curve. I will stop cutting people off in the middle of thoughts at some point. Like, I'm learning. What do you want from me? Yes, there was the time that I left in the whole argument you had with Philip that was recorded off on the side and I left it in. I am human. Like anyone could make these mistakes, Matt. Do I have to keep relitigating and reliving this with you?
0: There are Kim Peterson, for example, episode two, who potentially wants to take over your job. So I'm just going to say, if you're Most people
1: are out there until they see that they're paid in buckets of quarters. And then (laughs) they decide, you know what? sounded fun until I saw how and what I am made.
0: Uh, all right, Ashley.
1: Shoot, Matt, did I just lower my bucket? I <laughs> talked a little bit sternly to you.
0: I threw that bucket out. I threw that bucket out. It <laughs> no longer exists.
1: <laughs> am I back to the ramekin?
0: <laughs> I'm very excited. Our next week's show is with my very good friend, Laurel Mintz, who is the founder of Elevate My Brand. And she is the very first consultant to nonprofits that we've had on the show, which is a really big deal.
1: That's awesome. I bet that episode is really interesting because obviously in your line of work with, I don't know, we don't ever talk about it, but with Envision Consulting, the company co-founded, this is probably an area that the two of you are able to speak very deftly about together. And I bet it's a great conversation. I can't wait to mess up the ending of it.
0: Well, so is there anything, actually, anything at all that you would like to share with our audience before they're so happy not to have to listen to us anymore?
1: Yes, we just want to remind our listeners to please like us, subscribe, find us on Instagram, find us on Facebook, and don't forget to tune in next week as Matt talks to Laurel.